And so Paul said, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. There is a reason why Romans is considered one of the hardest books of the Bible to teach. In fact, pastors are often recommended to not even attempt it until they have at least 10 years of experience. So given that I'm about 17 years experience in, I'm giving it a shot. And the reason why it is considered one of the hardest books to teach is that while it starts out quite simple, chapters 1 through 6 are in fact very straightforward, and almost all Christian commentaries can agree on what they're saying. When we get to chapter 7 and 8, and next week chapter 9, it gets incredibly complex. And in fact, Christian churches are often most clearly divided when it comes to talking about these later chapters of Paul's epistle to the church in Rome. And here, at the end of chapter 8, at one of these most beloved passages in all of Scripture, we arrive at one of those complex questions. The question of fate, or fortune, or destiny, or the word we often use in Christian circles, predestination, election, or the foreknowledge of God. What do we believe about these things as Christian, about fortune or fate? Did you, of your own free will, choose to eat Cheerios this morning for breakfast? Or were you simply predestined to have that as your first food of the day? There's a joke that I came across on the internet, which I thought was kind of clever. Can you believe there are people who entrust their fate to a fortune cookie? Me, I take charge of my fate. I open cookie after cookie till I find the fortune I want. Now this passage from Romans, as beloved as it is, is loaded with words that are going to come up in the next chapters as well. Questions of fate and fortune and predestination. Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now there are, as I said, some Christian churches, especially Protestant Christian churches, who have created whole theological systems around those words that I just read from Romans. The most well-known to people is probably the Calvinist understanding of Christianity. And so the joke is told, how many Calvinists does it take to change a light bulb? None. God has predestined when the light will be on or off. Now, Calvinism, at its heart, is this idea that out there in the world are two groups of people. Those whom God has elected to salvation in his Son and those whom God has chosen to reject. And out of that very basic principle comes something which I bet a lot of you are familiar with from economics, the Protestant work ethic. Anybody heard of the Protestant work ethic? Originally coined to explain why certain Christian countries, Canada, especially English Canada, 
the United States of America, parts of the Netherlands, and the UK have been such strong economic successes, whereas other European Christian countries like, say, Spain or Italy, tending to be Roman Catholic countries, have not had quite the economic prosperity of the countries from the north. Underlying this idea of the Protestant work ethic is actually predestination and Calvinism. Because in these places grew up this idea that if you were indeed one of the elect, if God had predestined you to salvation, then he was also going to bless you in this world. You were going to be wealthy. You were going to have a big house. You were going to have a good job. Your children were going to be smarter than average, better looking than average. Now, if you wanted to prove to your community that you were one of the elect, you wanted to work really, really hard to make sure that your bank account was flush and that you had your debts paid off and that you had a good house and that you had a good car. So the Protestant work ethic actually has its roots in a very unique and distorted understanding of what Paul is talking about in Romans 8 and later chapters. If I'm one of the elect, I'm going to be blessed. And then came about that non-biblical proverb, God helps those who help themselves, which is not in the Bible. So I'm going to work hard to prove to my neighbors that God loves me best. Now I say distorted, because while this might be a great theological principle for developing a strong economy, on a personal level, it's disastrous. I'll give you one illustration, which I might have shared, I know I've shared in Bible class, I may not have shared in a sermon before. Back at the beginning of last year, we had a retreat in Puerto Rico for our, our folks who were dealing with the hurricane disaster. And we brought down a professor from St. Louis Seminary who is also a psychiatrist, does counseling. And he talked about a friend of his in Kansas, young woman, 38 years old, happily married, had a number of children, who was suddenly diagnosed with terminal cancer. She was not a Lutheran. She went to a Calvinist church a strong Calvinist church. Their pastor firmly committed to this idea of election. And so she could not square this idea that God would have chosen her before the foundation of the world to have faith in Jesus and be saved and then turn around and curse her with cancer. And so she did what often Christians do when their pastor is around, a little bit more often. She went and talked to him and said, I have this problem. What do I do and how do I understand this cancer in light of our teaching on election? Is it possible that I am not saved? And you know what her pastor told her? You're probably not. You're probably right. God wouldn't have given you cancer if you were one of the elect, if you were predestined to salvation. And this woman kept going to church faithfully with her family in the hopes that they might be saved week in and week out, knowing in her mind and soul that she was condemned to hell. The pastor did the funeral for this woman. And in his funeral sermon, preached about how strong this woman was 
to continue through all of her chemotherapy, through all of her treatment, knowing full well that she would burn forever in hell. That can't be right. And how do I know that can't be right? Because first of all, where is Jesus in this theology? Where is the incarnate Son of God who loved people to the end of his life? Where is the incarnate Son of God that forgave even those who were crucifying him? And who said, let the little children come to me, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And how do we connect that understanding of what Paul is saying with the rest of what he says in Romans 8? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including coronavirus, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the Lutheran Church grew up at the same time as Calvinism. And towards the end of the life of the second generation of reformers, they knew that they had to say something on this question of election because they knew what was being preached in Switzerland. They knew what was being preached in France and was starting to infiltrate England. And they knew that they had a unity of understanding these words that was very different from this horrendous doctrine being preached elsewhere that did nothing but bring pain into people's lives and gave no comfort when Jesus would have been there to say, take my yoke upon you, for it is light and I am humble of heart. And so in our formula of Concord, the last of the great confessions of the early reformers, in Article 11, they spoke up on the issue of fate, fortune, election, predestination. And the very first thing they said is, it is such a comforting article when it is correctly treated. Predestination taught rightly and understood correctly, is meant to be a comfort. It should have been the message given to that 38-year-old woman that would have given her joy in her last days instead of misery. And it's precisely why these words in Romans 8 about Paul talking about Christians being predestined and called and being part of God's elect only come seven and a half chapters into his letter. This is not where Paul starts. This is not his lead. He starts by talking about the need for repentance, that both Jew who has the law and Gentiles who have a conscience both understand that they have not lived the lives that God has desired for them. They have not loved their neighbor as themselves, and they have certainly not loved God the way they ought to. Then Paul gives them the good news that for both Jew and Gentile, Jesus Christ was sent in the flesh to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, that everyone can receive forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Then comes the promise of baptism in chapter 6, that we have died in baptism and have been raised again to new life in Christ. And then the conversation about the inner struggle of the Christian in Romans 7, 
that even after all of these things, we still struggle with our faith. We still struggle with the desire to love our neighbor. Then Paul talks about election as a comfort to Christians. It's meant to demonstrate that God has chosen you and is on your side. It's meant precisely to be a comfort to you and I in those moments when we wonder where God is and whether he really cares. It is misused when we use this doctrine as a cudgel over non-Christians because they need to go back to the first chapter of Romans. They have to start back with the issue of repentance. We don't start by saying, I wonder if you're one of the elect or not. That comes much later when as we look at the struggles that we have as Christians, as baptized Christians, we need to be reminded that God chose us. And so the Lutherans went on to write, we should not judge this election of ours to eternal life on the basis either of reason or God's law. This would lead us either into a reckless, dissolute, Epicurean life, hey, I'm going to do whatever I want, or drive people to despair and waken dangerous thoughts in their hearts. Maybe Jesus didn't die for me. As long as people follow their reason, they can hardly escape such reflections as this. Well, if God's elected me to salvation, I cannot be damned. Do as I will. Or, on the other hand, if I am not elected to eternal life, whatever good I do is of no avail. Everything is in vain. We must learn, the confessors continued, about Christ from the Holy Gospel alone which clearly testifies that God has consigned all men to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. That he does not want anyone to perish, Ezekiel 33, 11, 18 and 23, but that everyone should repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2, 1 John chapter 2. And just to make that point, it's a final kind of word to you. Look at our gospel. Because Jesus is saying the same thing, although it's in parables, and so we miss it sometimes. Now, there is a trick that I was taught, seminary, on how to read the parables. And it's really simple, and I've mentioned it here before, but I'm going to mention it again because it's safe for you and it's okay for me to do so, as Paul likes to say. Whatever comes first after the kingdom of heaven is like is Jesus. So look at these first two parables of our gospel reading. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Well, that sounds very much like the normal course of events. We go out into the world or even gathered here this morning and we share with people the good news that God is on their side, that he sent their son, his son not to condemn the world but to save the world, that he desires that all people be baptized and come to the knowledge of the truth, that he wants all people to live their life knowing that God is a merciful God and a kind and generous father, and so they sell everything they have to go and grab hold of that gospel with both hands. 
But then he tells a follow-up parable. And it sounds like the same thing, but if you don't know the trick I just shared with you, you'll miss it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, at first glance, these parables look to be identical. There's a treasure hidden in a field. Somebody goes, buys the field, gets a treasure. There's a really great pearl. There's a merchant, goes, sells all that he has, so he can go and buy the pearl. But the difference is who Jesus is in each parable. In the first case, yes, he's the treasure that we all go after and seek. And a really young Christian who maybe hasn't read all the way through Romans would be tempted to say, I found Jesus. I accepted him into my heart. I have decided to become a Christian. But then comes the end of Romans, or in this case, Jesus' second parable, where the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. Jesus is the one who sells everything to go and buy you. You thought you were the one going and selling everything to buy the treasure in the field, but Jesus says, really, at the end of the day, I'm the one who will give up everything to go and buy you. And that is the comfort of predestination. That is what we mean when we say that those whom he has predestined, he has also called. That's what we mean as Lutherans when we say we are God's elect, not as something that we go out into the world and say, hey, we're the elect, we're the elect, you're not, you're going to hell. It is so that we have the encouragement of knowing that we, first of all, have been sought out by Jesus and saved. And that this merchant still goes out today to look for pearls. And that whenever we share the good news about Jesus, through those words, that merchant continues the search, keeps looking for the treasure, keeps trying to find lost sheep that he can bring home. And when those lost sheep have repented, and they've realized that coronavirus, hurricanes, economic disaster, inequality, racism, all the things we see plaguing our world today are in fact the cause of sin that ultimately leads to death and realize the only solution is in Jesus and come to the font and receive the water of baptism where they are killed with Jesus and raised again a new life with Jesus. Then, as the cherry on top of the Sunday, as the icing on the cake, we give them this beautiful promise that God sought them out before the foundation of the world, that God has predestined them to salvation, and that they can now call themselves part of God's elect. In the name of Jesus Christ, who has predestined us and called us to salvation through his Son. Amen.